friends, please open to Psalm 62, which was read for us earlier on, and that we read the opening to as we began our time together. Uh, You will notice, um, last week I had a bit of a go uh, saying you should have a pen with you. Uh, This this week I'm even giving you a piece piece of paper to write upon that will give you an idea about where we're going as we go through this passage together. Psalm 62, hopefully you've got that open in front of you. Um, uh, If you've got, uh, I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, which is the one you've got in the seats there. Uh, If you've got the ESV, which a lot of people use, you'll notice that the words are sometimes a bit different, uh, and I'll explain something about that in just a second. Psalm 62, for the director of music... For Jejuthun, a psalm of David. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault a man? How long will you throw him down? This leaning wall, this tottering fence. They fully intended to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is the rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, let's pray. Great Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks and that you work by your spirit to take words and change us. Would you please do that this morning? Especially if we are feeling like there are other things that are around us and threatening us and making us think that you are not trustworthy, would you make us solid in our trust today? Amen. In uh, the translation I was using to prepare this, the very first word is truly. Truly. Certainly, surely, truly.
truly. And truth is the great theme of this psalm. Uh, truth is a challenging thing in a world where the, where the world is filled with lies that sound so true. When we live in a world where the truth seems harder to believe than the lies are, the lies seem so much more attractive. The lies seem so much more true. And so what do we hang on to? Is it worth hanging on to what we were taught was true when the lies seem so real? When they seem to give a better escape? When they seem so much more powerful? They can help me now, you know. And the truth seems so far away. There are so many voices that claim to be true. And those, those voices often call what we believe as Christians false. They might even call it offensive. What are you going to do? How can we make sense of life? Well, seeing through the lies is the heart of this psalm. Actually, if you follow through with me, I'll, I'll just go through with you and see how the word truth or the, the certainty is the theme that runs through this psalm. I'm not sure if you have noticed it. It starts off, truly my soul finds rest. Verse 2, truly he is my rock. Verse 4, surely it's the same word they intend to topple me. Verse 5, yes, the same word again, my soul finds rest in God. Verse 9, surely the lowborn are but a breath. This idea of certainty, of truth, is something that runs all the way through. If you've got the NIV, the ESV, uh, you'll notice it starts, as we said it in the beginning of the service, for God alone my soul waits in silence. The word true doesn't appear there. The idea of only is the word that is repeated if you've got that translation. The idea is that the, on the face of everything else, even though there's so many other things that are claiming to be true, there is only God. There is only the rock, that singular, sole, only, devoted truth. And the NIV, I think, captures that idea well by translating it truly. Truth is something that does matter. Actually, if you jump forward into the New Testament, jump forward a thousand years from when this psalm, this song was originally written, we jump forward into that great theme of truth in the way that John records Jesus' life. We're introduced to Jesus as being the one who is full of grace and truth. We are told in chapter 1, verse 17 of John's account of Jesus' life that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth is in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in chapter 8 of John's gospel, the truth will set you free. And then he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, when he starts many of his sayings and many of his teachings, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, truth. <laughs> and you know how we get to the end in John's Gospel and Jesus is standing in front of Pilate, the truth itself 
the truth himself standing right in front of Pilate and Pilate says, what is truth? When there it is right in front of him. It's so easy to be like Pilate, friends. Don't judge Pilate too quickly because that is where we often find ourselves. In a world where there are competing voices telling us that the truth is not the truth. How do we hang on to it? That's what this psalm is dealing with. It's a very real psalm. It speaks into our experience, doesn't it? Can I really hang on to Jesus? Is what he says, re- is what he says really true? When we come back to the psalm, that truly is repeated again and again. It's like the writer of the psalm has to say it to himself over and over again. Like he must repeat it to himself throughout his experiences. No, I will believe the truth. Uh, I'm particularly poor at noticing things. Uh, At one stage in our house when we were living in England, we had no curtains. uh, And then Alex put curtains up. I didn't notice for six months. Yeah, I'm uh, sometimes, sometimes even, sometimes even the best of us at noticing things need to have things pointed out to us, don't we? Maybe you're driving along, and you—I'm thinking about the days before Satnav, and you've got a, you've got someone who's beside you, who's directing you as to where to go. And they've got the map, and you don't, and you're driving along, and you, you know how sometimes actually it could be the satnav, and you're just driving along on the motorway, and you've sort of you're concentrating, you're not being dangerous, but you're sort of zoned out, and then you realise that the satnav keeps on saying something, and you look at it, and you said, oh, you, you, you missed you missed your turn a couple of go, times ago. You need someone to point it out sometimes because you're really focused on something else. You sometimes need an expert to point it out. In this psalm, the expert is actually the writer of the psalm and they're pointing out something to themselves. They're pointing out something that they are in danger of forgetting. And he does it twice in this psalm with a slightly different focus. He does it twice, addressing different types of lies that the world is telling him about how he should live his life. The first is stating the truth in the face of false friends. And the second, stating the truth in the face of false hopes. So verses 1 to 4 is where we start. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. What is the truth? Well, the truth is that if you want rest, go to God. The psalmist says to himself this truth because he needs to hear it. And it seems that the only one who's going to tell him the truth is him. He's been taught it and he needs to tell himself again. The language that he uses here, my soul finds rest in God, uh, if, again, if you've got the ESV, it has the idea of silence in there. Uh, but when it's talking about silence, it's not talking about verbal silence. Um, when we get down to verse 8, we find ourselves being encouraged to pour out our hearts to him. That's not an encouragement to silence. That's, a, that's an encouragement to say something to God. 
but it is this idea of rest. The silence is figurative. What we really want when we're troubled is a quietness of soul. This is a quote I found this week. A quietness of soul that comes with yielding all fears and anxieties and insecurities to God in an act of trust. That is what we're being called to. This is what the man who's writing this, David, the king of Israel, this is what he's, he's saying out loud for himself to hear. And there's a bit of a tension between the defiant tone of his declaration and the idea of stillness and quietness. It's like he's saying, my soul finds rest in God. He's shouting it to himself. My soul wants my, my soul waits in silence as he shouts it out. I will be quiet inside, is what he's saying. Maybe you've talked to yourself like that sometimes. When your mind is full and it won't stop. Maybe you've been trying to get to sleep and your brain keeps on going. Or maybe you're trying to do this, but your brain is so occupied with that that you can't get on with it. And so you might even say aloud to yourself, be quiet. Because you need rest. You need to get on with what's really important while your brain is distracting you. And so you declare out, this person's declaring out for all to hear, including himself. I will truly find my rest in God. That's where it is. Nowhere else even when the world is telling him everything is different. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. I need to tell myself that. I need to say that out loud, he says, because I need to hear it, because maybe no one else is saying it to me. And everything else is telling me otherwise. We find something like that in the New Testament. Remember in Philippians? The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's not talking about a feeling of peace there. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to feel peace? Oh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But even more important than feeling peace is having peace. If you were in the middle of the war and you felt peaceful, that would not be helpful. But just imagine, just imagine that peace was declared. You are at peace. You might feel like you're at war, but the truth is you are at peace with God. And Maybe you need to say that aloud to yourself. I am at peace with God through what Jesus did on the cross for me. It doesn't feel like that at the moment, but I know it's the truth. Because the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard my heart and my mind. Where? In Christ Jesus who died for me. He is my fortress. I am safe. And I will say it out loud because I need to hear it. Because it feels different to that at the moment. Why is he shouting about this being quiet and safe, well, he's, he's shouting it out because it doesn't feel like it's very true in that moment. Well, what are the threats that are making him feel differently? Well, the first threat in verses 3 and 4 is false friends. 
how long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down, this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. The experience of the psalmist is that the truth is being attacked and those walls that are so high and safe he starts to think, well, that it'd be an awful way long, it'll be an awful long way to fall down. That place of safety starts to feel a bit like a place of danger. What if standing on the edge, someone were of that really high tower, what, what if standing on the edge of that wall, which is there to keep you safe, what if you're standing on the edge and one of your, your friends pushes you down? What if that place of safety is in reality a place of danger? What if the walls are just a facade? You know what a facade is? You know, in the, in the, I think they still do it when they, particularly on talk shows, they, they have behind a fake window, a fake city. And it looks like there's a city there, but it's really just pictures propped up, probably made with cardboard or maybe a little bit of wood. It looks solid, but it's actually, he feels like he's like a facade. People might see me as a king from outside, says David, as solid and secure, but actually I, I feel like I'm leaning and I'm just about to topple. And in that kind of a predicament, in that, in that kind of unsafety, the thing that is most unsafe is if a friend who seems to be a friend comes and pushes. That's the danger that David is in the moment. Did you see it? Who intends to topple me from my lofty place? And then called verse 4, with their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. False friends, treacherous friends, friends who should be encouraging you and say pretty words, but actually want your downfall. The lie threatens to overwhelm the truth, and that's coming from this king's closest advisors, from his closest friends. Maybe, in, maybe even his own family are saying, Don't, you shouldn't really trust in God. Even as they say nice things, they plot his downfall. And so the truth of the king's security is threatened by the lies of treacherous friends. In the face of that betrayal, what does the king do? Well, it would be so tempting to turn to despair, wouldn't it? It would be so tempting to turn to wailing and shouting against God, to deny God's goodness when all your friends have turned against you, to say, I thought you said I was safe, and what do I find? I find those closest to me are plotting against me. And then taking the next step and saying, I cannot trust you anymore to God. It's tempting to do that, isn't it, sometimes? When things are hard. Christian friends, you may have been let down by another person who called themselves a Christian. And you think, is it really worth it anymore? This trust thing? It would be so tempting to say, in God I do not find rest. In God I am not safe. In God I am shakeable and shaken. It is a worthless fortress. It would be so easy to say that, wouldn't it? 
And in that kind of a situation, that is where this psalmist, this king, cries out, I will trust. He shouts it out to the world as if to convince himself. And maybe sometimes we find in verse 8, that's a model we need to follow. Cry it out so your own ears hear you say it. I do trust. I will trust. He is my fortress. Because you really need to hear the truth. In the face of that, the king declares the truth to the world and to himself. Despite what he sees, despite what he feels, despite his experience, he will declare the truth about God and believe that truth. Perhaps we read this and we might move our minds again from King David to King Jesus. Remember the religious and political officials in his day? And they came and they spoke to Jesus like this that we find in Matthew chapter 22. They come to him and they say, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity and you, you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't always, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They come with flattering words to him. Just like the psalmist David was faced with, people who should be friends saying nice things, but in their hearts, they are plotting his downfall. And Jesus sees straight through them. He knows their evil intent, the Bible tells us. You hypocrites, he says, why are you trying to trap me? He hangs on to the truth despite their lies, despite their flattering words, despite treacherous friends. And Jesus knows something about treacherous friends. Who was it who betrayed him? But one of his closest friends. And when he was betrayed, what did his closest friends do? Well, they did not take up their cross. They ran away. And when Jesus goes to the garden, he prays to his father in anguish. He says, is there another way? But then he says, but not my will, but yours. God's king, the Messiah, holds on to the truth of God's good plans, even, those, even when those who are closest to him are treacherous. The truth remains the truth, and our king hangs on to it. The king does not turn to the alternative responses, to the threats to his security. That's the theme of the next part, actually. <laughs> because verses 5 to 10 are about hanging on to the truth rather than other hopes, which are false. The psalm turns back to a statement of truth in quite similar terms, verse 5. You'll notice the similarity. But this, this time it's not a declaration to the world. This is more preaching to his own soul. You notice how he says it? Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock and refuge. He reminds himself of that truth. But what is the lie that drives him to need to repeat that and to preach the truth to his heart again, to his soul? 
Well, the threat is the alternatives he has available to him, such as trusting in other people and trusting in other solutions that this world comes up with. It's so easy in the time of real trouble to turn to, see, turn to solutions that seem attractive, seem powerful right here and right now. And actually, I'm not talking about anything trivial here. Neither is the writer of the psalm. Remember, he's the king. And he's writing about an issue of potentially life and death for himself. And not just for himself. If the king is killed, the nation suffers. This is not just talking about having a stubbed toe or hitting your finger with a hammer. This is big stuff we're talking about here, the stuff of life, stuff of life and death. Think with me about the most difficult of situations in this world, either now or in history. Imagine yourself having been captured and about to be killed or sold into slavery. What do you think about God now? As they're haggling over the price for your life. As you're about to be sold into servitude for the rest of your life. And you're a Christian. And you hear, the, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my salvation. Are you going to trust God? When things look like that for your future? That's not very likely for me. It's probably not very likely for you, but it's even today likely for some people. Remember the people who I heard of once who were kneeling on a beach, guns to the back of their head, and asked, will you trust in Jesus now? That's pretty rough, isn't it? Maybe that's not what you're expected to th expecting to think about this morning at church. But in that situation, if you can imagine it, are you going to first of all turn to the Lord is my rock and my salvation? Is that your first thought? Is that where you turn? What use is that? When the finger on the tr trigger is itchy. Maybe you turn instead to the poorest of the world to rise up with you and overthrow your enemies. Maybe that's a better hope. If the enemies of the king are high-born, then let's turn to the low-born together for our real hope. I remember in George Orwell's 1984, I remember one of the quotes I memorised for essays, if there is any hope, it lies with the proles. It relies with those who are like me, downtrodden. And if we could all get together, we can make the world a better place and overthrow our oppressors. And then we will win. And then we can make our fortress. And we can be solid and we can be safe. Is that kind of revolution the hope for salvation in this world? It's tempting to turn to it, isn't it? If in a real situation, or maybe 
Maybe the lowborn are the enemies. Maybe, maybe those who are uneducated are trying to overthrow us, who have the power. Maybe not in our culture, but maybe in the world. I mean, after all, we gave them education, and now they're turning it back against us. They believe the things that we used to believe, and now we've come to learn something different. How dare they use what we gave them against us? Let's put them down in our words and in our actions. The high-born are the hope. Is that the way we do it? The low-born are the hope. Is that the way we do it? No. The writer reminds himself, both of them, whether they're high-born or they're the low-born, they're just a breath and they're gone. There is no substance to that kind of solution. And as you're kneeling there on the sand, do you really believe there's no substance in that kind of solution? Is God really your solution like that? Or are you going to turn somewhere else? Maybe if we can steal their riches, we'd do a better job with that money. And so we'll get it for ourselves. Their power that they are misusing in this world. Our great hope is to steal that for ourselves. That's where our hope for the future lies. That's the way we should act. That's where we'll put our hope for salvation. In power and in riches. It'd be so easy to do that, wouldn't it, friends? To pursue that way of living. And it feels much more safe. It feels much more real. And God goes into the background. So we need to remind ourselves that the low-born are but a breath, the high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they're nothing. Together, they're only a breath. Don't trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. The fate of the low is the same as the high. They're gone like a breath. They're a delusion and the final judgment, they are nothing. High or low. At Jesus' arrest, Peter, Peter turned to the power of the world for his answer, didn't he? He took out his sword and he struck the ear off the high priest's servant. Do you remember what Jesus said? Put back your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's what Peter remembers in his first, lesson, first letter, that Jesus didn't go the way of his opponents. He didn't go to swords and clubs like Peter went. He didn't go to the unique power he had to call down legions of angels. <coughs> Instead, in Peter's words, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, what does Jesus do? When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Because even the power of the cross of Rome was not powerful enough to overcome the truth that this psalm is expressing. 
It's not more powerful, this world, than the power of Jesus, whose kingdom has been established by the transformed power of the cross, by his death upon it. Oh, it looks foolish to trust in the cross, doesn't it, when there are so, uh, so many other powers that look so much more powerful? What is the power of the cross in the face of great military power, of the gun at the back of the head, of the slaver who's about to sell you into slavery? The cross has the power to secure an eternal future. Oh, that's so easy to forget in the moment, isn't it? In the moment that is so immediate, where the threat is so real, it's so easy to forget eternity. Because now feels more real. Oh, that's the lie. That's the lie that the psalmist is crying against. That is the, that is the lie that Jesus acted against. Do you want to see true power? Well, come and have a look at the last, the last verse. One thing God has spoken, two things I've heard. That's a formula of the Proverbs, introducing a trustworthy and true saying. Power belongs to you, God. With you is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they've done. Do you want to see true power? Do you want to see true love? Do you want to see true justice, friends? Oh, don't we? You will not find it in this world, is what God tells us. It doesn't mean we don't strive for it, but we don't expect we're going to get it. You want to find the true thing? You go to God, who secures your eternity. You go to Jesus, who died on the cross to make you right with your Creator. The eagle-eyed among you will notice that we sort of skipped over verse 8. Did you notice in verse 8 there's a bit of a change in subject or a bit of a change in who's being spoken to? In the rest of the psalm, it's the psalmist talking to himself, preaching to himself. And we need the king to do what we cannot do for ourselves. That's what we were looking at last week, particularly. But verse 8 speaks to us as followers of the king. It's not just the king does it for us so that we don't have to. The king does it for us so that we can follow in his steps. If we are the king's people, we will act like the king did. And we too, in a difficult situation where we are being oppressed we will turn the other cheek, like our Lord did. We will entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, like our Saviour did. Because we know the truth is that he is our fortress. There is nothing that can take away what he has given us. Even though the world yells to us that it's useless. Even though the world says your thinking about eternity is a waste of time because it doesn't give you anything here and now. And you say, yes, I know. But eternity is a long time. And I will spend it with my Lord. 
and I will pour out my heart to him when my life is hard. I will tell him that life is hard and he will hear me and I will be reminded that I have eternity. He is my fortress. Truly, truly, that is the truth. Friends, do you need maybe to hear that today? Have you bought into the lie that this world is really what's important? That taking the power of this world is really how your life is going to be meaningful? Have you bought into the idea that if you were just a bit more nasty to that person and put them down, that you'll get the next promotion? If you spread the rumour about them and find their weakness, then you'll get ahead. Or if you do that, you'll stop suffering quite so much. And life will be a little bit more easy. And so you start to turn to the world's way of doing things when things are hard, rather than turning to the truth that God is good, that God is love, that God is justice. Friends, maybe you need this psalm. To remind you of the truth. The truth that your true security is in Jesus. Not somewhere else. Come to me, all who are tired and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, help us when things are hard. Help us when truth is threatened. Help us when we are tempted to do things the way the world does. Help us to know the truth so well that we can say it out loud so that all can hear it, even us. When all things seem to be turning against us, when we are suffering and in pain, help us to pour out our hearts to you and declare the truth to our souls. And we thank you that Jesus did that for us, That in the garden he didn't turn to the ways of the world, the ways of clubs and swords. That he didn't even turn to the legions of angels that were at his disposal. But he entrusted himself to you, the just judge. He went to the cross through suffering to glory. As we follow him, we ask that you will help us to move along those same footprints. Through suffering, but to glory saying again and again that my, my soul finds rest in God alone. Truly, that is the place where we find salvation, that you are my rock and my fortress, and I will never be shaken. Amen. Just pause for a second and just consider what we've looked at in that psalm. Uh, if someone comes to you over coffee and asks you, what, what stood out most f- from God's word for you today? What is your answer going to be? Just think about that for yourself so you have an answer prepared. <laughs>